just a reminder to our guests, we do stand a lot in this church. Um, and we want to, you know, just make sure that you feel welcome and know that you can always take a seat. <laughs> feel free and comfortable to do that whenever during the service you can. Stay engaged, of course, but um, we uh, just want to encourage that. So um, our New Testament reading this morning is from uh, the book of John, chapter 7. And I'm going to begin at the uh, verse 40. Division among the people. Hear the word of the Lord. When they heard these words, some of the people said, This really is the prophet. Others said, This is the Christ. But some said, Is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, Why did you not bring him? The officers said, No one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, Have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, said to them, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. And our sermon text is Colossians chapter 2. Verse 9 and 10. I'll wait for the pages to quit rustling. Verse 9, for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. This is the word of our Lord. You may be seated. Amen. Thank you, Ty. A couple of pre-sermon uh, thoughts, uh, comments, words. Uh, yes, we do stand a lot. Uh, but we sit more. And those of you that have been with us for any while can figure out that why that is. If you're visiting with us, you can, count on, you can count on being seated for at least 45 minutes and maybe an hour or so. That makes up for all the standing of singing. Uh, I heard a, a music leader, I was going to suggest this to you, Ty. When we start, I, love, I heard a music leader the other day say, stand with us if you're able. That's a good way to put it. You know, and I agree with what the heart of what Ty said, if at any time. I mean, my legs get tired over here. I'm getting up there, you know. And, uh, so so uh, anyway, stand if you're able. And then when, if you get tired, just sit down. But do stay engaged. Keep your mind focused on the lyrics to the songs and the words of, uh, from the scriptures and the words from this pulpit uh, that line up with scripture. Any words that do not line up with scripture, you can flush, you can ignore. Uh, but anyway, uh, and then a couple of comments on the, on the songs. Man, uh, I, I love when the songs hit me with something. The line, streams of trouble never ceasing. That's a little twist from the old standard, you know, hymn of streams of mercy never ceasing. But I like this, streams of trouble never ceasing call for songs of loudest praise. We American Christians need to hear that because American Christianity is dominated by the mindset that says streams of good happenings never ceasing. That's what call for songs of loudest praise. Like, oh, it was really a God thing. And when somebody says that, that means something good has really happened. But let me tell you, sometimes God sends things of trouble that is a God thing too. And we need to remember that. Streams of trouble never ceasing. That's when we should praise God, maybe even louder than when things are going good, because it reminds us that He is still our fort. He is still our refuge. He is still there, and we are still standing upon Him no matter what is happening in our world, whether streams of trouble or streams of mercy, streams of goodness. Anything for the Christian calls for songs of loudest praise. So thank you to Shane and Shane for uh, promoting uh, that uh, mini-sermon before the sermon. Uh, anyway, and I noticed that, yes, we will stand longer when we sing two Shane and Shane songs. I have noticed that, okay? So thank you, brother. Uh, anyway, and then uh, any song, 
the new son today, man, any son that's got the word predestined in it, man, I'm for it. I mean, how many songs got that word in it? Can you think of songs that got the word predestined in it? Okay, we just learned a song, predestined for your purpose. But that's straight out of Ephesians 1, right? You know, you, you got to deal with the doctrine of predestination because it's in the Bible. It's in the Bible. Okay, so those are my pre-sermon words. Um, we are, for those of you visiting with us, we have just begun a series. This is our third message in the series, Blessed Be the Name of the Lord. We are pondering together the names of Jesus. So far, we've looked at and considered and pondered and worshipped Alpha and Omega, our apostle, our advocate, the angel of the Lord with an asterisk beside it because some theologians don't believe the angel of the Lord was Jesus. Most probably do, many do, angel of the Lord, so we included that. The Amen, the ascended one, and then connected to the ascended one, we looked at high priest and king. Now, I realize that at some point pretty soon, the review list will be too long to repeat. So, I may just, like I did with the lessons from Ecclesiastes, when we went through Ecclesiastes, I may just print a sheet and update it every week and put it out there on the table with your seat saver. So, uh, I'll, I'll be thinking about that, but I know at some point we won't be able, for time's sake, to repeat all the names that we've studied so far. So, I may put a review sheet out there for you. Um, As we've said uh, the last two weeks, by doing this, we are getting to know Jesus better. That's our goal. By by growing in the knowledge of the Lord through studying the names that Scripture gives Him, we are growing spiritually. How do we know that? Because that's what the Bible says will happen in 2 Corinthians 3.18. As we behold Jesus with unveiled faces... With the masks removed, as we behold him, the scripture says we are being transformed into his likeness from one level of glory to the next. So let's pray that that will happen today for every believer here. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for Jesus. Open our eyes wider to see him more clearer. Open our minds to ponder with great delight his beauty, his greatness, the wonder of who he is. So that when, as we do that, when streams of trouble never ceasing engulf us because of our knowledge of who Jesus is we will still issue forth songs of loudest praise so father teach us about your son today by your spirit and from your word teach us about Jesus. In his beautiful name we pray. Amen. All righty, our springboard text today, and all the, all the uh, sermon texts for this series will probably be springboard type texts that launch us into a, a, a list of names, okay? So really, you really got several sermon texts, okay? Because for every name we look at a text. But I always like to pick one to kind of springboard off of. And our text for today was Colossians 2, 9 and 10. Ty's already read it. I'll read it again. For in him, in Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you, Christian, you believer, have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. So, to springboard off of this text, let's look at two, the first two phrases from this text. The first phrase, for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. That's just basically a fancy way of saying, a very theological way of saying that Jesus is God. Put simply, Jesus is the visible 
expression of God. When he was walking the planet, he was God incarnate. He, he, he was God in the flesh. In Jesus, the people who were with him in that first entry, they were seeing God. Okay? So, we don't see him with physical eyes today, but we see him from the scriptures. So, when we see Jesus from the scriptures, we see God. And so, as we get to know him by studying his names, as we are doing, we get to know God. And this is basically how Jesus himself defined Christianity in John 17, 3, when he said, and this is eternal life, okay? It could have said, and this is Christianity, because Christianity is eternal life. The only way you're going to have eternal life is by becoming a Christian, is by being saved. By that I mean eternal, joyful, good life. Everybody will have eternal life. Non-believers will have eternal life in hell forever. Please, please, I beg you, if you're not a Christian, today's the day of salvation. You don't want that, okay? So everybody has eternal life. But normally when we talk about eternal life, we're talking about it from the aspect of life with God, life with Jesus, life with every believer in the new heavens and new earth forever, okay? Got that clarification? All right, good. So Jesus defined eternal life or Christianity in this way. And this is eternal life that they know you, he's talking to his father, that they know you, the only true God, and, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. So Christianity, i.e. eternal life, is knowing God and knowing Jesus. And as we get to know Jesus, we get to know God because Jesus is God. The fullness of deity, the fullness of God, dwells in Jesus bodily. I mean, that's what Jesus told his disciples, right? In John 14, 9, whoever has seen me has seen the Father, right? That's just how it works. When you get to know Jesus, you get to know God. Why? Because Jesus is God. The fullness of God, deity, dwells in Jesus bodily. Or as the inspired author of Hebrews told us in Hebrews 1.3, Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and, don't you love this, the exact imprint of his nature. Jesus is the exact imprint of God's nature. Okay? So that's what the first phrase is talking about. The whole fullness of deity dwells bodily in Jesus. Second phrase, and you, believer, have been filled in him. You have been filled in him. Alternate translation, you have been made complete in him. You don't need a second blessing, beloved. No matter what our Pentecostal brothers and sisters tell us, you do not need a second blessing. You are complete in him. In other words, we have all we need to live the life God has called us to as Peter taught us when we were studying his two letters, you know, we have been given all things pertaining to life and godliness. And those all things are found in Jesus. We are complete in him. So, it follows that as we get to know Jesus, since we are complete in him, we also are getting to be more knowledgeable of our spiritual completeness. Are, are you with me? And we are becoming more confident in who we are in Him. Does that make sense? You with me? Okay. In Him, all the fullness of deity dwells. Jesus is God. And you are 
complete in him. So as we get to know Jesus, not only do we get to know God, but we get to know our completeness in him and we grow in our confidence in that. Therefore, let me tell you where I'm going with this. Therefore, we become less wimpy spiritually, okay? Less passive, less fearful, less milk toast. I love how Vince Everett Elson puts it. Quote, I'm a child of God and an heir of Jesus Christ. Possessing his power, I fear no man. <laughs> amen, amen. What did, what did Jesus tell us in Acts 1.8? You shall receive what? Power. Power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Now, who's the Holy Spirit? Well, Jesus told us earlier. In John, it's, he told his disciples, it's better that I go away. It's better that I leave you. It's better that I ascend. Because when I do that, guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to send another. Another. And the Greek word means one exactly like me. Okay? So the beauty of the Trinity. God is the imprint. I mean, Jesus is the exact imprint of God. And he sent one to indwell us that is exactly like him. So we've got the fullness of God dwelling in us through the Holy Spirit. And the reason why Christians don't understand that or know that or live like that is because they're not knowing, getting to know Jesus. That's the reason. Are you with, do you hear what I'm saying? Do you hear what I'm saying? Okay. I'm, I know I'm loud enough. So I know, you, I know you're hearing the sound but is your heart taking it in? Because I'm going to speak to you guys. I'm going to speak to us guys in just a minute. Acts 1.8. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Power for what? Well, our Pentecostal brothers and sisters, once again, think it's power to do miracles. And power to speak in tongues. Power, power to be slain. No. No. It's power simply to represent Jesus. You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And what are the, was the rest of the sentence? You shall be my witness. You shall be my witness. You, strong, bold, courageous witnesses, even to the point of death. The Greek word for witness there is martyr, M-A-R-T-U-R, from which we get the word martyr, M-A-R-T-Y-R. Okay, Christians receive the power by receiving the Holy Spirit Christians receive the power to live for Jesus even under the threat of physical death. Jesus was very clear and very blunt and very honest and very truthful, as he would be because he is the way, the what, truth, and the life. He was very truthful with his followers back in the day, back in the first century. He said, some of you are going to die. Some of you are going to die for me. But you're going to have a power that's going to enable you to do that. You're going to have a power that's going to keep you from running away from that. But then he also said, but not a hair of your head will perish. You will not go to hell. Hallelujah. So, quick side note. I encourage getting to know Jesus better to every member of our flock, male and female. The only two genders, by the way, which cannot be changed by saying you're the other one. But I say this this morning, especially to my brothers, to the men of this church, we must step up for the glory of God and for the sake of our wives and kids and grandkids. A podcaster that I listened to often recently said one of the biggest problems in America right now is, quote, a lack of masculine aggressive initiative. Men in America have become way too passive. Too many males have been neutered by a society that seems to want to eliminate men, or at least if not eliminate them, at least make them deaf to God's call on their lives. 
Too many of our fellow husbands and dads and big brothers are cowering in the corner for fear of being canceled. The woke mob has sold a brain-dead, godless society a false bill of goods about the evils of the so-called patriarchy. And therefore, because of our implied connection to the sins of men who went before us, we 21st century men just need to sit down and shut up. That's what the world's telling us. And because of this pressure from the spirit of the age, men have become paralyzed to take any kind of initiative because they don't want to be called domineering or chauvinistic or an evil patriarch or whatever. Too many men have surrendered their God-ordained role of loving servant leadership, the kind of leadership the Bible describes, and the kind that Jesus models. So men, brothers in Jesus, let's wake up. We are here for such a time as this. Let's wake up and be the men that God has created us, saved us, and ordained us to be. Let's get busy getting to know Jesus and our completeness in him. And let's hear the words that abound throughout the word of God from beginning to end. Fear not. Fear not. You're you're an heir of Jesus Christ. You need fear no man. So, Let's get to the names of Jesus. We're into B now. As I said, for most of this series, we're going to try to go alphabetically. We'll vary it from it every now and then. But we're in the first B word for today. He's the branch. He's the branch. Isaiah 11, verse 1. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Jesus is the branch or the offshoot from the line of David. Remember, Jesse was David's father. So Jesus is the branch from the line of David, the promised eternal king. The phrase stump of Jesse, that refers to the remnant of God's judgment on rebellious Israel. God mowed them down, basically, in in judgment. And a stump remained. And from that stump, the stump wasn't dead. From that stump comes the twig that will be the Messiah. I don't know how many of you have ever been to our house. Many of you have. Uh, If you haven't been recently, there's been a major change. Uh, If you know, if you pull up, come around our curve in our driveway, and right there at the walkway leading up the front porch were two gigantic bushes, two just gigantic bushes. I mean, just huge, just gigantic. Levi would always hate to uh, say, Levi, one of your jobs today is to trim these, the two gigantic bushes out there, and he would do it. He would do a great job of it, but finally, they just, they just gotten so big, they just gotten out of hand, so back in the winter, yeah, yeah, bush murder. I just... Cut them, I mean, stumps. They just wood, just wood. Two pieces of wood on each side of the walkway. Two, two pieces. Well, look like they look like deer antlers. I mean, they're just it's deer, dead, dead stump. But spring came, so guess what? Yep, the twigs are coming out. The stump was not dead. Okay, it, it's gonna it's it's a good gonna be a good size now for a while. Okay. There's, that, that's what we're talking about here. The stump was not dead, okay? I, I really don't have a whole lot to say about this name except this. I encourage you to see it as a reminder that God never forgets his people. Yes, he rightly brought deserved judgment on them for their idolatry, 
their rebellion, their sinfulness. Yes, they deserved to be disciplined and punished. Yes, he brought them down throughout history with righteous judgment, reducing them to a stump. But there was always life in that stump. That, that stump never was separated ultimately from the grace of God. Just like my bushes. Man, they looked dead when there was no green on them. When they looked like deer antlers. They would look dead, just like sticks sticking up out of But now, boy, you can tell there's vibrant life now. And there always was. And that's always been the case for God's people. No matter how bad it got, there was always life. There was always a remnant. There was always the righteous branch that would bear the fruit of born-again sons and daughters of God. Jeremiah 23, 5 says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I'll raise up for David a righteous branch. And he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute judgment and righteousness in the land. Unlike the, all the failed human kings before him. And they were pathetic, weren't they? My Bible reading for this year, I'm in Kings and Chronicles. Those guys were pathetic for the most part. You had your Josiah here and there, Asa here. But for the most part, they were pathetic. But unlike all the failed human kings before him, this son of Jesse, Jesus, will bear the fruit of a new world, a new covenant, a fully restored kingdom, and a new creation in the new heavens and the new earth. Hallelujah. Hallelujah for the branch. Because of the eternal covenant of redemption, because of God's promise to his son, to give him a people who would be his eternal bride, the righteous branch was always in existence and would ultimately grow from that stump and flourish. Zechariah chapter 6, verse 12, And say to him, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, the man whose name is the branch, for he shall branch out from his place, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. Question, what is Jesus doing right now? In addition to preparing a place for us, John 14, in addition to being our advocate, like we talked about last week, and our high priest, in addition to those things, what else, what else is he doing? He's building his church. He's building his church. That's what he told Peter. Upon this rock of your confession, the confession you just made, Peter, that I'm the Christ, the Son of the living God, upon that confession, upon the rock of that truth, I will, not maybe, not might, not I'm thinking about, I will build my church. I will build the temple of the Lord. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. He is building the temple of the Lord, the church, us. He's doing it. You're a part of that. Know that, beloved. Know that. Jesus is building us individually, transforming us into his likeness by his spirit, and he's building us corporately. He's making us the church that his father wants, and it's a good thing. If you're not a part of that, if you're not a part of that because you're not a Christian, I, I, I urge you with everything in me. Repent of your sin now, today. Confess Jesus as Lord. Receive him as your Lord. Second name, number two, he's the bread of life. John chapter 6, pick it up at verse 30. So they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? These are these, uh, you know, snarky Pharisees that are always questioning Jesus, always trying to catch him, always trying to trick him. Here they are again. Our fathers ate the man in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, 
But my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Here we have the first of the seven great I am statements that we find in the Gospel of John. John is a beautiful gospel. They're all beautiful. John is beautiful. John focuses on the godness of Jesus, the deity of Jesus. And you get these I am statements, uh, these Yahweh statements. I am the, I remember God, burning bush, Moses, who are you? I am who I am. That's the connection here. Jesus is basically saying, I am the I am. And I, that I am includes being the bread of life. I am the bread of life. He is the answer to our hunger to our spiritual hunger. Just like bread is considered a necessity by all people for physical life, especially in Jesus' day when bread was more of a staple than maybe it is today, especially in Jesus' time. But bread even today represents food, necessity, necessary food. Jesus is a necessity for eternal life for true life, for abundant life, for spiritual life. If you're here not a Christian, you're alive physically, but you're dead spiritually. Jesus is a necessity for spiritual life, for eternal life with God forever. Bread, i.e. food, satisfies physical hunger. Jesus is the only one who satisfies a person's spiritual hunger. A hunger, by the way, that everyone is born with, whether you realize it or not. Everyone is born with this hunger. What did we learn in our study of Ecclesiastes? Chapter 3, verse 11. God has put eternity into man's heart. Every man is born with that eternity in his heart and that need and hunger for Eternity, eternity that can only be feel, filled by someone eternal, namely Jesus. We try to fill that eternal void before, before we're saved. We try to fill it with all these material things and all these morally good things, family, friends, loved ones. Yeah, good, morally good things. But Jesus is the only true spiritual bread of life. So just like bread satisfies physical hunger, only Jesus can satisfy spiritual hunger. Just like God gave the Hebrews food or manna in the wilderness, He sent Jesus, the bread of life from heaven, to sustain us as we go through the wilderness of this evil age. Very simple truth, basic truth, not deep theology here. For bread to do you any good physically, you got to do what? Eat it. Woo, that's deep. You got to eat it for it to do you any good. For Jesus to do you any good, you got to receive him. He called it. Eat my flesh and drink my blood. We're fixing to read that. We're fixing to do a, a, a corporate pondering walkthrough of, of a pretty big portion of John 6. He, Jesus uses some very vivid statements regarding that. Let, let's look at it now. John 6, we'll pick it up at verse 47. And 35 is where he says, I'm the bread of life. We've already read that. Okay. 47, just pick it up there. Truly, truly, I say to you, Jesus is speaking. Whoever believes has eternal life. And then he repeats, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. 
I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. So see, every time we come to this table, this is in a very real sense what we're doing. Jesus is is sort of preparing us for the meaning of of this. You, You take that unleavened bread, that cracker in your and put it in your mouth and you're eating the flesh of Jesus in a symbolic way this is what Jesus is talking about so every Sunday we get to not get saved again that's a one-time thing okay but we get to reconfirm that we're we're a child of God we're we're joining with Jesus we fear no one and this bread reminds me of that in him dwelt all the fullness of God bodily, and I am complete in him. See, I don't, I don't know what goes through your mind with the table. Sometimes, yeah, my mind wanders, I confess. But these are the kind of things we need to be thinking about and praying for and praying about and, and thanking God for when we are here. This isn't just a mindless, rote, mechanical thing. In John 6, Jesus is preparing us for this. Let's, pick, let's continue. Uh, end of 51. The bread I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed him. That, see, that got him going. That got, they got their hackles up. What in the world is this guy talking about? The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, there's there's the cup, and drink his blood, you have no life in you. You have no life. That's why the communion, the Lord said, is a family thing. It's for people with life, true life. Spiritual life, eternal life, born-again life. Whoever, 54, whoever feeds on my flesh takes the bread and drinks my blood takes the cup, has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. These are are heavy-duty statements, aren't they? This is why a a lot of, this is one of the reasons the Roman government gave for crucifying Christians after the resurrection of Jesus because they were Uh, accused of being cannibals yeah we hear you eat flesh and drink blood and so you are a criminal and we're going to crucify you verse 57 as the living father sent me and i live because of the father so whoever feeds on me he will also live because on me feeds on him the table. But even beyond that, as we study Jesus from the scriptures, we're feeding on him now. We're feeding on him corporately now, every Sunday. From his word, at the table, when we're in fellowship together, there's Jesus right in the center of all of it. We're feeding on him and we're being nourished. And we're growing spiritually. Hallelujah. Isn't it good? Isn't it good? Aren't you glad you're saved? 50, let's see, where are we? 58. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread, whoever feeds on Jesus, will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue 
as he taught at Capernaum. Verse 60, I love this. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending the way he was before? (laughs) You're offended by this? Just wait. (laughs) It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. Apart from Jesus, what? We can do nothing. Apart from the Spirit indwelling us, we can do nothing that honors God. The flesh is no help at all. Another translation, the flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But but there are some of you who do not believe. Jesus knows our hearts. He knows us through and through. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. Salvation is a gift. God has to grant it to us. For by grace are we saved through faith. And this, this faith is not of yourselves. It's a gift of God so that no man can boast. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. So dear unsaved person, if you're here today, where where else are you going to go? Where where are you going to go? Only the bread of life has the words of eternal life. Psalm 34, I, I urge you, taste and see that the Lord is good. Give you a final word on this from from James Montgomery Boyce. I always loved his commentaries. He says this about this name. Have you ever thought about all that grain must pass through before it becomes bread? It must first be planted and then grow. When it is ripe, it must be cut down, winnowed, and ground into flour. Finally, it must be subjected to the fiery heat of the oven. Only by this process does it become able to sustain life. This is what happened to the Lord Jesus Christ in order that he might become your bread. He was born into this world, in a sense planted into a virgin. He was bruised. He was cut down by sinful men. He passed through the fires of God's holy wrath as he took your place in judgment. This is his glory. He suffered this for you. How then can you refuse to feed upon him? Come to him. Draw from his fullness and grow strong. Jesus is the bread of life. Thirdly, he's the bright and morning star. Listen to Revelation 22, verse 16. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. As the bright morning star, Jesus lights our way. You know, I had a good, I had a good run at Lorraine Elementary School. Oh, Ben Mix was one of my PE students there uh, many, many years ago. And uh, I, I love that job. I love that. I love that. I love the partnership. We, it, it, it was for me as this, as this church was beginning and as God was growing us. And, uh, but the, the, set, the, the setting of the school, it's, it was beautiful. If, you're an element, if you've ever been an elementary school teacher, let's see, Sarah would know about this. Some, man, Elementary school in Rodeo County started at the crack of dawn. I mean, good grief. It was dark. I don't think I ever went to school when it was light. You know, it, it was dark, especially in the winter. And 
every morning, I would always park in the back of the building. The gym had a back entrance. I wouldn't go through the front. I would go through the back. And I'd come around that, that corner there to go into the back entrance of the gym. And up in the sky, there it was, Venus, the morning star. Every morning, every morning, outside the entrance of my door, gym door of Lorraine. So every morning, I got a reminder of this is the day. That the bright morning star is made. There he is. I mean, reminder of him every day. It was so beautiful. It was, it, was, it was so good. And I just thank God for that reminder every day. Jesus is the bright morning star. You know, God allowed even the uh, prophet Balaam. We talked about him when we studied Second Peter, remember? He allowed the prophet Balaam to get a vision. This wicked false prophet to get a vision of the glory star in Numbers 24. Remember it? Verse 17. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheth. 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 Okay, that's what I said, Sheth. Like last week, I said, shipload of sin. Okay, just know that. I'm trying to enunciate better, okay? All right. I had somebody call me on that last week, but, I, you know, as you get older, you start slurring your words. So I, so I, I, I just got to be careful and enunciate, okay? Um, once again, as we see these words coming from a false prophet, Okay? Once again, we are reminded that all of the Bible points to Jesus. All of the Bible, even accounts in the life of a wicked false prophet. I mean, and isn't that what we read in Luke 24, verse 27? Two disciples on the Emmaus Road, they're all despondent and in despair because of what has happened in Jerusalem in recent days. And Jesus appears to them, and he gets their story first. And then verse 27 says, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. I love Alistair Begg. Man, I love him. He gives us a helpful outline of the Bible. I want to share it with you. In the Old Testament, Jesus is predicted. In the Gospels, Jesus is revealed. In Acts, Jesus is preached. In the Epistles, Jesus is explained. Like Colossians 2, 9 and 10, our springboard text. For in Him dwells all the fullness of Godhead bodily. In the epistles, Jesus is explained. Hebrews 1 is the exact imprint of God's nature. That's what he's talking about. In the epistles, Jesus is explained, and in Revelation, he is expected. Isn't that beautiful? Put that to memory. That, that tells you what the Bible is all about. In Old Testament, somebody's coming. He's predicted. In the Gospels, here he is. Here he is. He's revealed. In the Acts, he's preached, and the gospel spreads from Jerusalem, Samaria, to the outermost parts of the world. Then God used the apostles to, in the letters, to explain who Jesus is. And in Revelation, man, he's coming back. Behold, I'm coming soon. Amen. Then Beck says this, the truth is that the Bible will be an impenetrable mystery at every point where we take our eyes away from Christ. We will lose our way around the Bible when we fail to look at Jesus. That's why I end all my emails with pressing on with you with our eyes fixed on Jesus. We want to stay centered. We want to stay focused. We want to stay on track. And I found in my life, I don't know about you, but I found in my life, when I get my eyes off Jesus, that's when I get off track. 
So keep looking at Jesus, church. Keep looking at Jesus. When you read your Bible, keep your eye on Jesus. See those predictions about him in the Old Testament. See him revealed in the Gospels. See him preached in Acts. See him explained in the letters. And see him expected in Revelation, which will raise your expectations as well. Number four, he's the bridegroom. Let's hear from John the Baptist, okay? Oh, yeah, hang with me. Okay, here we go. John chapter 3, verse 26. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. And John answered, man, what a mature answer. Man, I I could do a whole sermon just on John's response here. Okay, but look at this answer. A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. In other words, this ministry isn't mine. The ministry I had that Jesus is now taking over, it wasn't mine in the first place. It was God's, and God gave it to me. You yourselves bear witness that I said, I'm not the Christ, but I've been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. What a great prayer for all of us. Jesus must increase. I, my selfishness, my pride, my self-centeredness must decrease. As our bridegroom, Jesus leads us, protects us, cares for us, nurtures us, and ultimately lays down his life for us. Just like every human bridegroom should be willing to do for his bride. That connects back to my introductory mini-sermon to, to us men. Jesus is the perfect bridegroom, and we must emulate him. We must follow him. In salvation, believers are united to Jesus in a spiritual marriage. So the question for all of us today is, are you united to him? If not, today's the day. Today's the day. If your answer is yes, which I believe and hope that's the vast majority of the people here, if your answer is yes, I'm in union with Jesus. I I make up a part of his bride, the church. He is my bridegroom. Then Glenn Scribner describes the happy result. Quote, if so, he absorbs all our debts and we share all his riches. He takes all our sin and gives us his righteousness. He cleanses our filth and clothes us in fine linen, bright and clean. It's the old story of the handsome prince who marries the pauper, but this is for real. If you are united to Jesus, you go from rags to riches, from the bad guys to the good guys, and from a tragic ending to an eternal inheritance. I love that old, uh, since it's Pentecost Sunday, I didn't mention that earlier, but since it is Pentecost Sunday, got a quote from a song from the second chapter of Acts, okay? Singing group back in the, what, late 70s, early 80s. Uh, Prince song. Love that song. I'll live forever with him right by my side. He's coming again on a white horse. He'll ride. He'll clothe me and crown me and make me his bride. You know what I mean. Bask in the vision that God gave to John in Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven. And a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Can you imagine the union that's going to be? at the marriage supper of the Lamb. When we behold our bridegroom with glorified eyes, 
and we actually see him? Oh, man. Dwell on that this week. Last name for today. He is the beloved. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 to 6. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. We sang that earlier. Even as he chose us in him for the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us. There's that word. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed, he has blessed us in the beloved, capital B in the scriptures, beloved. That's Jesus. Jesus is the beloved. He is the beloved son of God. He is our beloved savior. He is our beloved redeemer. He is our beloved death conqueror. We echo the song of Solomon. I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. What else is there to say? What words can be added? He is our beloved. Let me wrap it up. Samuel Rutherford, old Puritan, ministered in Scotland in the mid-1600s. So we're talking, what, 500 years ago. He was a pastor in a place called Answorth by the Solway. He was arrested for preaching and after a period in jail was summoned to appear before the king. He died before being able to respond to the charges brought against him. Roughly 200 years later, his ministry was still touching people. Many of his choice phrases preserved in his letters from jail made an indelible impression on a young woman named Anne Ross Cousin, who was deeply affected by Rutherford's ministry 200 years after he died, M much of which had been preserved in print. From his writings, which she had assembled, she learned solid theology. As a result, in 1857, she wrote one of the greatest Christian hymns in Emmanuel's land, also known as, from the first line, the sands of time are sinking. Almost 200 years after Rutherford's ministry, the original rendering of this song has 19 verses. So yes, you, if we ever sing that, you can sit down if you need to. Okay. Each verse gives an insight into the preaching of Samuel Rutherford. Here are two of those 19 verses which highlight two of today's names that we've looked at. Oh, I am my beloved's, and my beloved is mine. He brings a poor, vile sinner into his house of wine. I stand upon his merit. I know no other stand, not even where glory dwelleth in Emmanuel's land. The bride eyes not her garment, but her dear bridegroom's face. I will not gaze at glory, but on my king of grace. Not at the crown he giveth, but on his pierced hand. The lamb is all the glory of Emmanuel's land. Dear church family, we are headed for a place that will be filled with the glory of Jesus. Our study together in this series only gives us glimpses and little bitty tastes of it. But we're headed to a place that will be filled with the glory of who he is. Emmanuel's land, new heavens, new earth, the place our bridegroom is preparing for us. Until that day, may we never stop growing in the grace and knowledge of Jesus, our righteous branch, our bread of life, our bright morning star, and our beloved bridegroom. Let's pray together. Father, what can we say? We are our beloved's.
and our beloved's is ours. Thank you for Jesus. Help us know him better day by day, moment by moment. Fill our mind with thoughts of his beauty and wonder and make us more like him. In his name we pray. Amen.